If your ancestors didn't hang with us when it wasn't cool, said a spokesperson for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, you shouldn't be trying to hang with us now. What is wrong with this statement? A lot. I'm Pete Ferrand, and this is The Time Traveler's Suitcase. You just heard the first words in an audiobook I recently narrated about real people who proved the geneticists wrong. Today's program is based on that book of DNA investigations, written by Donald and Teresa Yates. Rocking our hearts. Rocking the rest. These are the stories of people who, in the words of the Lakota singer-songwriter John Trudell, didn't answer to their descriptions. We will hear about great-grandmothers who were, or maybe were not, Cherokee princesses. A modern-day trail of fears, not tears, but fears, that continues to deport Indian descendants to legal limbo territory, and the individual Indian monies accounts, the largest class-action suit ever filed against the federal government. It once cost the United States seven million dollars a day. In our podcasts, we'll be talking about a lot of different ethnic groups and different epochs, as well as taking a look at many aspects of the American Indian heritage story, with voices to tell that story. Nearly 2,000 years ago, 200 BCE, Great revolutions happened in the north of Asia. The Oguzian Empire was severed, and a swarm of barbarous nations emigrating from Tatari, Mongolia, and Siberia spread desolation from Europe to America. In Europe, they nearly destroyed the powerful Roman Empire, and in North America, they subverted many civilized states. When we lived beyond the Great Waters, there were 12 clans belonging to the Cherokee tribe. And back in the old country in which we lived, the country was subject to great floods. So in the course of time, we held a council and decided to build a storehouse reaching to heaven. The Cherokees said that when the house was built and the floods came, the tribe would just leave the earth and go to heaven. You will never find out the truth about my mother's people sneered Elzina when we met with her in her Victorian cottage in Huntsville. Elzina was Teresa's aunt, my father-in-law's older sister. Teresa and I had both recently discovered we were Melungeon, or at least of Melungeon descent. As an American Indian recently relocated to Santa Fe, I regarded an outing to Chaco Canyon as a pilgrimage of obligation. So on a bright, sunny Saturday morning in October, three of us set forth after mistakenly selecting the shortest route on the map. The Decalogue Stone outside Los Lunas, New Mexico, is a sight seen by few people. Its very location is something of a state secret. You need a $25 access permit from the public land office to go to it. Only officials are very clear. They cannot and will not give you directions. DNA Consultants is the sponsor of the Time Travelers podcast. 
It's a company that has been helping people find their ancestry for more than 15 years. The founder, Donald Yates, has written a number of popular books that have now become audio titles, like Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Proved the Geneticists Wrong. His pledge, then and now, was to treat every customer's family history with the same care as his own. That idea was behind the DNA Fingerprint Plus, a test based on markers of the type used on television crime shows. Today, DNA Consultants has the only available Cherokee ancestry test. Now introducing Primeval DNA. Based on the discoveries of Israeli-American geneticist Aran Elhaik, it will be the world's first ancient DNA test series. Could you match both modern-day Israeli Jews and ancient Israelites? It's possible, but it's only possible at DNA Consultants. Visit us online at www.dnaconsultants.com. Check out the latest in DNA research on modern-day populations and ancient peoples like Vikings, early American Indians, Stone Age Europeans, and others. You'll be delighted and amazed. Now, let's hear some of the stories from the Cherokee DNA Studies book. Who hasn't heard about the Cherokee grandmother myth? According to one Internet oracle, let's just be honest here. Your great-grandmother was probably not a full-blooded Cherokee princess. Hundreds of sites and articles proliferating on the web politely or impolitely tell you why. Reason number one. The Cherokee didn't have princesses. It turns out they did and still do. Reason number two. Unless your great-grandmother was living on the Cherokee reservation in either Oklahoma or North Carolina, she probably wasn't a full blood, nor was anyone else. Reason number three. The word Cherokee has become generic, like the word Kleenex. Really? Maybe I should have had a Kleenex when I went into the gym on the Hopi Indian Reservation. There were two admission prices, one for Indians and one for Bahanas, white people. Although it was a pittance's difference, I asked for the former, telling the Hopi on guard I was Cherokee. Don't get a nosebleed, he said. Perhaps the deadliest arrow in the quiver of the grandma haters is the old wives' tale explanation. Princess was a popular term of endearment early in the 20th century, says one source. Your great-grandfather may have called your great-grandmother his Cherokee princess, not because she was royalty, but because he loved her. Isn't that sweet? Yes, but I do not think sweetness was why King James I recognized Pocahontas as a princess, or why the War Department paid my fifth great-grandfather an annuity in the name of Black Fox, the Cherokee King. In multiply intertwined genealogies, my grandfather was descended from one of Black Fox's daughters, and my grandmother from another. If their father was a king, what did that make Nancy Black Fox and Marianne Black? It gets even better. Your white ancestor may just have told his family his wife was a Cherokee princess to alleviate racist tension. Or... It's possible that your ancestor may not have been American Indian at all, but rather African American. There is no evidence beyond the anecdotal and theoretical to think our great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers got everything wrong. 
despite its juggernaut march into popular belief. The phenomenon of the Cherokee princess can be traced to a single article written in a forgotten book in 1996. The book was Dressing in Feathers, The Construction of the Indian in American Popular Culture, and the article was My Grandmother Was a Cherokee Princess, Representations of Indians in Southern History. In it, Joel W. Martin imagined Having hated and removed most literal Indians, Southerners fell in love with figurative ones. An astonishing number of Southerners assert they have a grandmother or great-grandmother who was some kind of Cherokee, often a princess. More falling in love here. Maybe my great-grandmother really was a Cherokee princess. We turn next from the grandma haters and genealogy doubters to our second segment, taken from the first chapter of the audiobook by Yates and Yates. The title, again, Cherokee DNA Studies, Real People Who Proved the Geneticists Wrong. Modern-day genetic genealogy has deported thousands of unsuspecting seekers of the truth down a trail of fears. Can we at least divest genetics of some of the fear? All DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, is nothing more than an arrangement of elements. Hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and the all-important carbon join chemically in different ways to form four key molecules. Adenine, A, guanine, G, thymine, T, and cytosine, C. These four molecules, or bases, along with the sugar molecule and phosphate, are the building blocks of DNA, the genetic code that has been replicating and recombining since life on Earth began. The specific arrangement of these molecules, packaged in perfect copies in every cell of our body, provides us with an ineluctable trail going back to the prototypes of our ancestors and passing through every subsequent descendant on down to us. Only about 3% of the AGTC code actually is recognized as a gene that, quote, does something, unquote. In other words, determine hair color or produce an enzyme. The rest either serves for punctuation or its purposes are unknown. But even non-coding DNA sequences obey the strict rules of heredity. The genetic glossolalia spit out in lab reports used to be called junk DNA until it was objected the creator didn't make any junk. The variations and patterns geneticists and genealogists detect in the family tree are called haplogroups, branches, haplotypes, twigs, Signatures, alleles, variants, markers, or just plain mutations. The latter term does not mean that you carry a risk for developing a rare genetic disease or giving birth to a two-headed calf, however. Most mutations are neutral in effect on our biology. Analysis of American Indian DNA usually focus on mitochondrial haplogroups. Scientists zero in on a set of about 16,600 nucleotides stuck outside the cell nucleus 
where the six billion nucleotides composing all the rest of our DNA reside. Males and females have mitochondrial DNA, but only mothers can pass it. Deep ancestry in an unbroken line of mothers and their children is inferred from a small control region of nucleotides. The target is uniparental inheritance, the transmission of genes from one parental type to all progeny. Mitochondrial DNA can trace your mother's mutations back to the daughter of Eve she descends from, just as Y-chromosomal haplotypes can reveal what son of Adam your father is. But both are tools of limited usefulness in understanding the wide diversity of genotypes and complex process of change across what is much like geologic time, the long stretch of history. Moreover, these are just two approaches to the problem. No past society has been composed of women alone, or only men, and the male and female roles in human migrations and population expansions never quite seem to match up. Y chromosomal Adam is a lot younger than mitochondrial Eve. Our uniparental ancestors were not alive at the same time. The history of sex is hardly an open and shut book. Geneticists construct their pedigrees and phylogenies using evolutionary theorems of random mating and sexual selection. But throughout most of human history, couples have married non-randomly and led lives more monogamous than polygamous. We sometimes hear that all people on Earth can be traced back to a small group of anatomically modern humans, or that the genes of Jesus or Buddha or Alexander the Great live on in infinitesimally small amounts in all of us, no matter where or when we might have been born. That is not true, even on a statistical level. Neither Jesus nor Alexander the Great had any recorded heirs of their body. Rahula was the historical Buddha's only child. He became a celibate and predeceased his father. The English and American monarchists are probably not all dead who proudly trace their pedigree to William the Conqueror. But William's male line died out with his own son, Henry I, who was plagued with girl babies and was succeeded by his nephew, Stephen of Blois. The telephone books today are not replete with listings for Conqueror, William T. Perhaps those who joy in his royal haplotype got it from illegitimate offspring? That should not surprise us, since William himself was called the bastard. Geneticists tackling the new Indian problem resort to desperate sampling of willing or unwilling reservation or South and Central American Indians, rarely comparing the whole genome data or tendered genealogies. Though Cherokee Indians constitute one of the oldest, largest, and best documented Native American groups, at the time of writing, only 60 Oklahoma, Stillwell, and Red Cross Cherokee individuals have been genotyped with tribally specific markers, this only on the basis of mitochondrial DNA, mtDNA for short, HVR1. Cultural resistance to DNA testing, extinction of male lines by warfare and government policy, unknown amounts of European admixture, and the Cherokees' own particular problematical history of non-reservation life and assimilation have hampered genetic research and denied us all answers. There are many humorous things in the world, observed Mark Twain, 
among them the white man's notion that he is less savage than the other savages. Since the beloved author of Tom Sawyer penned these words, one might expect that knowledge of Native Americans would have become a dry and settled matter. The United States contains some 300 Indian reservations, covering more than 50 million acres of land in 27 states. Differences between Indian and Indian are as bewildering as their similarities. A famous book speaks of 500 nations, while an encyclopedia enumerates 223 separate and distinct cultures. Oklahoma alone has 67 tribes. According to a U.S. government report, American Indians represent 1% of the population, but 50% of its diversity. They account for a large part of America's fascination in the eyes of tourists, especially Europeans, who often come without preconceived ideas. Between the 1990 and 2000 federal censuses, the U.S. Indian population doubled from nearly 2 million to over 4 million. Most of the increase came from altered categories of reporting that allowed people to identify with more than one ethnic category, for instance, American Indian and African American. Yet there was more behind this dramatic shift. Since about the 1920s, American Indians were having more children. Their numbers have been rising rather than declining. Undoubtedly, there is also an element of fashion in this trend. It is now more acceptable to be an American Indian. But such groups as the Pan-American Indian Association maintain that even these figures were low. Executive Director Chief Piercing Eyes insists there are more than 15 million U.S. citizens of Indian ancestry. As Indian blood becomes increasingly watered down, the United States is witnessing an atavistic return of the Red Man. Among the new Indians, the Cherokee are perhaps the best educated, best organized, and certainly most numerous. In the southern states, it is hard to find an old family without some degree of Indian blood. Cherokee is the most common type mentioned. By a wide margin, the Cherokee today constitute the largest Indian group. The Navajo, or Diné, comprise a distant second. It is estimated there are nearly 500,000 or more self-identifying Cherokee Indians in the United States. These numbers include the three federal entities, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, United Kituwa Band, and Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina, plus more than 100 state tribes and untold unaffiliated Cherokees. Los Angeles has the largest concentration. Most people believe they know a lot about Indians. What defines American Indians in the first place? A friend asked me, What do you say to someone who tells you, Funny, you don't look like an Indian? I said, I didn't know. He told me, You ask them, What does an Indian look like? Fluctuating criteria cause a lot of fear and confusion. For instance, you can qualify as an Indian for educational or health care purposes, but be rejected by anthropologists or geneticists. Prehistoric and sometimes even historical Indian populations diverge significantly from modern-day populations. There is no shortage of frustrating stories in matters involving Indians and the government. 
Our next case involves who is and who is not eligible for Indian benefits. It started with one family in the 1890s, and their descendants are still planning challenges today. Elephants and Indians have long memories. This chapter will acquaint readers with a jumbo-sized foul-up that still rankles among Oklahoma Choctaws, the story of Nancy Cooper versus the Choctaw Nation. It represents the longest-running enrollment case in federal Indian law. Nancy Cooper was the daughter of a Choctaw chief and is my, Donald Yates, first cousin five times removed. Ever since we were kids, says Tom Estep, my mother told us how we were the descendants of a Choctaw chief. I thought, yeah, right, Mom. But she was always telling it and how we were being denied our rights as descendants. When we asked why, there was no clear reason. One of the stories was there was a fire in the courthouse that destroyed all the records. Another was Grandpa was too drunk to make it to some government meeting. And finally, there was the too-proud-to-be-put-on-a-roll explanation. One night I was watching a show on TV about AIM, the American Indian Movement, and was sitting there thinking about how the BIA and the Dawes Commission had really screwed over us Indians. I googled my grandfather's name, Oscar Peck, and lo and behold a document popped up from the Department of the Interior with his name on it in connection with the famous court case Nancy J. Cooper versus the Choctaw Nation. Nancy Cooper and others had fought to get the Cooper family name onto the Choctaw Rolls. This lit a fire under my mom, who is now seventy-six. Within days, she and my brother were on their way to file for their CDIB, Certificate of Degree of Indian Blood. Spoiler alert, it's not going to happen. Poor, alone, blind, and never married, Nancy Cooper faced a destitute existence in the 1890s when the Dawes Severalty Act took effect. Elders advised her to apply for tribal membership so she could receive a small government stipend. She became the title plaintiff in the case Nancy J. Cooper v. the Choctaw Nation. It was tried in the Southern Division of U.S. Court Indian Territory under Judge Hosea Townsend. On November 15, 1897, after more than a year of testimony was taken, the court issued its decision. Nancy Cooper and her relatives were enrolled in the Choctaw Nation. Two Days Too Late But after more of the disenfranchised applied for tribal membership, the Supreme Court overturned the case in 1909. My husband and I talked to the BIA in Muskegee and found out about the 1909 ruling, wrote descendant Pam Henson. They told us the reason it was overturned was because the people named in the court ruling were not living in the Choctaw area when they were added to the Dawes Rolls. They, in fact, were in the Chickasaw area of Duncan, Comanche area, now Stevens County. Aunt Artie Meesey was told that her family was too poor to be on the rolls. There were over forty Choctaws on the Nancy Cooper case. Nancy died, and it was overturned after she fought so hard to win the case in Ardmore. Died thinking nieces and nephews would be taken care of and knowing their heritage would be confirmed. There were Browns, Coopers, Sanders, Nichols, Campbells, Bowens, Martins, and Longs. 
The National Archives in Fort Worth has the case and letter to Caswell Marion Brown, file number 6022, June 29, 1909, titled Denied Enrollment from the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Nancy Cooper versus the Choctaw Nation turned into one of the classic cases of federal Indian policy. It continues to be studied in law schools, and there are hundreds of Choctaw descendants who have not given up seeking enrollment or re-enrollment. It was one of the meritorious cases championed by J.W. Howell, an Eastern Band of Cherokee attorney and assistant in the office of the Attorney General for the Department of the Interior. The legal details appear to be these. Although the names of all the claimants except the newborns began immediately to be registered by the Choctaw Nation, an adverse decision arose in the Choctaw-Chickasaw Citizenship Court. Subsequently, the Department of the Interior held that the Citizenship Court never acquired jurisdiction of the case and directed that enrollment proceed. But that did not hamper the foregone conclusion. The completion of the enrollment of claimants in the original case was prevented by a misconstruction of the Attorney General's decision of February 19, 1907. It then pleased the Department of the Interior to misconstrue the decision of the Citizenship Court, rejecting the claimants as final. On March 4, 1907, the Attorney General repeated his opinion of February 19, 1907, reiterating that the claimants were entitled to enrollment. This latter brief, however, did not reach the Department of the Interior until March 6, 1907, two days after the rolls were closed by operation of law. There was no authority in the Secretary, under the law, to enroll them. Nancy Cooper was laid in a pauper's grave. Her father, John Cooper, had been enrolled and unenrolled. Not only was the family too poor to be Indian, it was two days too late. Nancy Cooper's experience was not nearly as horrendous and protracted as that of Eloise Cobell, a young woman on the Blackfoot Reservation in Browning, Montana, who started asking difficult questions about the money owed to Native Americans over 30 years ago and has still not received satisfactory answers. The individual Indian money scandal makes Nancy Cooper's case look like an undeserved parking ticket. Cabell versus Babbitt, as it was first named after Secretary of the Interior Bruce Babbitt, was filed in June 1996 in U.S. District Court to compel an accounting and adjustment of the individual Indian monies going back to 1887, unsuccessfully reformed and audited in 1992, and described by one reporter as the world's sloppiest banking record-keeping. According to Bruce E. Johansson, the IIM case has become the stuff of political and legal legend, with half a million plaintiffs. It is the largest class action ever filed against the U.S. government, the largest single employer of federal legal talent in the history of the United States. As the case dragged on for more than two decades, systemic, if not precisely systematic, malfeasance and larceny unfolded in the headlines. The government had never established an accounts receivable system, not since the Indian Department was created in 1823, so it never knew how much money it was handling at any given time. Partial records indicated that more than $50 million was never paid because the BIA had lost track of account holders. 
About 21,000 accounts were listed in the names of people who were dead. Large numbers of records had been stored in cardboard boxes, left to soak and smear in leaky warehouses. About $695 million had been paid, but to the wrong people or native governmental entities. One property record valued chainsaws at $99 million each. Some of the records were contaminated with asbestos, and others had been paved over by a parking lot. Of the 238,000 individual trusts, 118,000 were missing crucial papers, 50,000 had no addresses, and 16,000 had no documents at all. Supervisors appointed to clean up the mess quit in disgust. Federal judges were removed. The blue-chip accounting firm of Arthur Anderson went down in defeat, failing to reconcile 2,000 tribal accounts to say nothing of the 17,000 individual ones, and that for the relatively short span of the past 20 years. The Departments of the Interior and Treasury inadvertently destroyed 162 boxes of vital trust records during the course of the trial. In 2003, the Bush administration proposed a legal bill of over half a billion dollars to hire more attorneys to defend itself. Cabell was quoted on Native America Calling as saying, Just by not settling the case, it's costing the government and taxpayers $160,000 an hour, $7 million a day, $2.5 billion a year. The Bureau of Indian Affairs website was closed for a period of eight years. The bottom line was the BIA and Treasury Department never built a record-keeping system capable of tracking the money owed to Native Americans based on income from its superintendency of their resources. A Republican-controlled Congress was unwilling to seriously consider paying hundred-year-old arrears that could cost as much as $40 billion. In March 2005, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez stated, the United States' potential exposure in these cases is more than $200 billion. The case was settled for $3.4 billion in 2009, with $1.4 billion going to the plaintiffs and $2 billion allocated to repurchase land that was distributed under the Dawes Act of 1887 and return it to the tribes. But as of August 5, 2014, the settlement had still not been paid to beneficiaries. It seems Nancy Cooper et al. and Eloise Cobell et al. will have to continue to wait. On our next The Time Traveler's Suitcase, join us for a program coming up devoted to ancient DNA. DNA consultants and Dr. Iran Elhaik of the University of Sheffield in England are riding this coming wave. Will you pass the ancient Israelite test or prove to match an ancient Viking? How about matching an ancient Celtic warrior? Tune into Primeval DNA Testing. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and from the link at dnaconsultants.com. We'd like to hear your comments. Please direct them to the webpage. The Time Traveler's Suitcase is brought to you by DNA Consultants. Check out the webpage at dnaconsultants.com. The program is written by Donald Yates, and I'm host and producer Pete Ferrand. 
Thanks for listening.